everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. It was not a tremendous Thursday for the Houston Astros. Not only did they lose their third straight game and drop three of four to the Toronto Blue Jays, they had one player inexplicably get picked off due to some base running blunders. Yet another one decide not to hustle to beat out a throw. You had your best player leave the game with an injury. And the cherry on top, a pitcher you were hoping to get back, we find out you may not get back at all. That's okay, because they got Jordan Alvarez. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Oh wait! Oh no, but but it's still okay because Lance McCullers is coming back soon. We we no. we're waiting on him. He's gonna kind of bolster everything. Oh no! 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 no. Oh man! No. Yeah. Tough Thursday for them. Woo! Tough Thursday for the defending World Series champs. Good morning. Welcome to RP3 and Company. I'm your host, Raymond Parch III, better known as RP3. Joined inside the Evco Development Studios here in Upper Lafayette by the producer extraordinaire. Mr. Dawson Iserlow. we got a good show lined up for you today. Oh, man, we're going to cover so much with you. We're going to give you the other three Super Regional matchup previews. They are all involve SEC teams. We got that on tap for you. We're also, oh, wait for it. Oh, yeah, we're going to do that for you. We're also going to talk about the College World Series for softball. Oklahoma third straight national championship we're also going to talk about the big 12 announcing plans to embrace mexico in multiple sports and the pac-12 released its football schedules and they're just as absurd as you thought they were going to be in particular for the schools leaving the pac-12 and joining the big 10 In particular, UCLA. We'll share that with you. And is CP3 really as injury prone as you believe he is? Dawson did some investigative work on that. That's what we got on tap for you. Got three great guests as well. James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast to talk all things Houston Astros. I communicated with him last night. He's not in a happy place. (laughs) Bill Frank as the voice of Alex Box Stadium will join us to help us preview the Baton Rouge Super Regional between LSU and Kentucky. And Dan Favalli, Bleacher Report's NBA reporter, will talk NBA Finals with us. Of course, you know we love to hear from you. Hotline's always open. You know that. 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. 
But we got to start with those Houston Astros. 3-2 loss to the Blue Jays. It's now three in a row. They dropped the four-game series in Toronto. Blue Jays pitching, uh, with the exception of the first game, where the Astros teed off on the pitching, the three games after, Blue Jays pitching has been absolutely excellent. Just excellent. Third loss in a row for the Strohs that matches their longest slump of the season. The Astros also lost three straight from April 2nd to the 4th and then again from May 6th to the 8th. An interesting stat out of this game is that Houston is now 6-6 in one-run games. They're an average team when it comes to close ball games. It's interesting. I don't know if it means anything. It's just interesting. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean... You feel actually decent about that, that your record is where it is and you you don't have like an advantage that, that would tend to be skewed over the course of a long season. So I think, Correct. I think we'll take a I'll, – I'll take that as good news today. On a day that was filled with so much bad news, yes, that is that, – that, that's, not, that's, that's not terrible news. <laughs> so you will gladly take it if you're an Astros fan. The lineup once again was not good. And, and look – Credit Toronto's pitching for stepping up and having great stuff for three straight games. That's part of it. That's part of it. And the Blue Jays did enough at the dish. They win their major league leading 12th game when scoring three runs or fewer. That's a team that knows how to win playing small ball and not having to depend on scoring seven, eight runs a game. Blue Jays have had a rough go of it this year in stretches, but it sure does feel like they're starting to turn a corner. Once again, it's a long season. It's 162 games, correct, Dawson? There we go. Toronto's victory denied Astros lefty Framer Valdez a fourth consecutive winning start. Valdez is now 6-5 and five on the season. He allowed three runs and four hits in five innings. He walked four and struck out five. Houston took an early lead in this game in the second inning. Bregman led off with his ninth home run, and a second run was scored when Jake Myers grounded into a bases-loaded double play that brought home a run. But that would be all the scoring that Houston could muster. couple blunders in this game. What's Jeremy Pena doing? Can we start there? He led off the eighth inning with a comebacker to the mound, but decided not to run hard to first. The throw to first was off, and if he would have given 10% more effort, he would have been there safely, easily. But it allowed Vladimir Guerrero Jr., I'm old enough to remember his father being great, to recover and tag the base. He's a young player. It's a teachable moment. I'm assuming that's how Dusty's going to approach it. But when you watched it live like I did, you just went gross. Like, 
you're a young athlete. Like, what are you doing? Like, well, you gotta get a, you got to give effort. Like, look, no, nobody runs 90, 90 miles an hour to first base every single ground ball in the major leagues. doesn't happen. But I think you got to know time and situation. And in the eighth inning, you're down a run, and it's kind of a slow hit, tough play for a pitcher. Correct. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that tough of a play. He just kind of botched it. But it was, you know, there's a time and place to try and leg one out or at least put a little pressure on the defense. And I think the eighth inning in a one-run game is uh, one of those situations. Exactly. Second inning in a game that's, you know, you're up by four, down by four, maybe a little bit different. But you're in a tight game and you're trying to salvage a series. Didn't love that. Also, didn't love the continued tour of Abreu doing bad things. Base running blunder for the free agent slugger who has been struggling at the plate to begin with. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. I, as someone who, look, I made a couple of questionable base running decisions in my day as well. I, I get it happens to everybody, <laughs> right? But I was watching this play. I still don't know what the plan was. What happened is Abreu's on second, and you got a runner on first um, with one out, I believe, in the inning. The catcher for Toronto kind of takes a peek over at first, like he might be thinking about backpicking. Yep. And what I think happens is Abreu sees that, and if and if maybe if, if, the, guy, if the catcher would have thrown it down to first, Maybe he was going to try and break for third. By the way, I still don't recommend. In case Jose Abreu hasn't noticed, he's not the quickest cat on the block. Um, <laughs> no, he's not. So he starts kind of he, he kind of gives this little hesitation step, and he's just sitting out there in no man's land. So then the catcher for Toronto looks over and literally, I think actually, I think I read his thoughts. I think he said, is this guy serious right now? And he just backpicked him. <laughs> and then Abreu just kind of hesitated and then just took off yeah, for was, third and was man. out by a mile. And it's, oh. I mean, that was their first sign of an offensive rally in a long time in that game, and, and he just kind of, he said, no, no, don't worry, guy. I know I'm not used to, you know what it is, too? He's not used to being on second base. Because <laughs> he hasn't been hitting doubles or anything all year, so that's what it was. But it was, no, I, that's when I said, all right, I'm turning this off for now. And then I went back, and then it was more It was more better. pain later. Abreu's base running blunder. Pena not running it out. The lineup... Once again, not able to score more than two runs. Toronto's pitching was amazing. Jordan Alvarez leaves with an oblique discomfort. A team already riddled with injuries as it is. Michael Brantley apparently is still in the ether somewhere, or they're hiding him in a stash house in Columbia. I'm not for sure what's going on with that situation. A team already riddled with injuries. He is their best player by a country mile. He is a guy in the MVP conversation. You lose the big fella. We don't have an update on that. We probably won't get one ever because the Astros treat their injuries like they're a CIA operative in a 1980s espionage movie, but not ideal. Yeah, I'm realizing now I probably lied in the drill. I said we're going to hear more about Lance McCullers last week, but I'm realizing that we're not. Um, <laughs> we're, we were told we're going to hear more about him next week, but now that I think about it, I, I should I should have probably said we won't hear anything or we'll get some mysteriously vague Morse code translated Update next week. After scoring 11 runs in Monday's win, the Astros are held to five runs in their next three games, all losses. Not 
ideal by any stretch of the imagination. It is, as Kevin Foote would say, mui pawball is how he would describe that. Here's the other interesting thing. We are now June 9th with this team. It's a long season. You've heard me say this over and over again, right? Houston is only 19 and 17 when facing off against teams that have a record that's 500 or better. Which means that they've racked up a bunch of their wins against bad teams. Foot's big thing is don't get swept. Well, they didn't get swept, but in a four-game series, they essentially got swept. They lost three or four, but they didn't get swept. I know it's still early, D'Lo, but the fact that they're barely, they hover around 500 against quality teams and they beat up on the bad teams. Any, anything there, anything that makes you go, not really, because that's kind of what you're supposed to do, right? And you, I mean, you know, you have to beat good teams at some point, but they're still above 500 in that department and they haven't been themselves for most of the year as far as health and availability. Now, the only the more cause for concern here is the fact that you're getting farther away from that than closer to it as far as being yourself and being available and being Correct. healthy. Um, so I'm not actually worried about the performances of of what's of when you've been out there. Um, and even look, even the McCullers thing again. I've I've been kind of treating McCullers the way I treat Michael Thomas in my head for a long time now. So that one's not as big of a blow, especially considering how well JP France, Blanco, Belak, all those guys have been. Um, the Jordan Alvarez one is scary, and you know this could be, you know, this certainly could be precautionary, and maybe it's extra precautionary. I know that there was also some, you know, the air concerns in Toronto. Like there was a lot of reasons to be cautious about anything that went wrong in that series. So let's wait and see. But if you get the news that Alvarez is going to be out two, three months, or whatever, you know, whatever vague update they decide to give that doesn't sound like he's playing next week. Then um, yeah, then it's time to probably it's time to have some to, concern yeah. because I just don't know where you're going to get offense at that point because he's really he's, he's he has really disguised a lot of your issues in Correct. some areas. He has carried the team. Bregman is starting to heat up, right? Altuve's finally back, but you you never do know if you're going to get Michael Brantley back. We don't even know if Michael Brantley's alive. Someone needs to go do a, a welfare check on him to see if he's even still alive. The news that also came out yesterday for the Strohs on a terrible Thursday for Astro fans, Lance McCullers Jr. will undergo an MRI tomorrow. This was tweeted yesterday by Chandler Rome from The Athletic, which means the MRI will be held today. After suffering a setback. Love the Astro players rehabbing and suffering setbacks. That's what happened to Brantley as well. Astros general manager Dana Brown said a decision on his future will come after that early next week. That sure does sound like we're not going to see Lance McCullers Jr. this season, doesn't it? That sure does feel that way. That's the vibe. That is the vibe. And I feel the same way about Brantley. And for, for Houston... You're not going to get McCullers back. I wouldn't be confident that you're going to get Arkiti back. We were we were told by the All-Star break. Now we're hearing reports after the All-Star break. I would go ahead and just put in your mind, Astro fan, probably not seeing him the rest of the year. Just just go ahead and just, 
do yourself a favor. That way, if he does pop up, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Pleasantly surprised. But McCullers has suffered a setback in his return. Jordan Alvarez leaves a game with an oblique strain. Jeremy Pena doesn't hustle in a close game. Abreu is a buffoon on the base pass. And to be fair to Dawson's point, he he's normally not on second base, so it's confusing. The lineup doesn't get enough hits and score enough runs as they lose their third straight game. Can't score. Gross. They're five games back now of the Texas Rangers, who, by the way, despite having one of their aces that they're spent a lot of money on, still win ball games. The, the Rangers look like a playoff team to me. They did before the start of the season. An interesting note, I mentioned Houston's 19 and 17 when facing opponents whose records 500 or better, you'll take that. Here's another note for you. The Astros trail the Rangers by five games in the AL West. They have never been five games back in the division at any point during the past five 162-game regular seasons. So the entire run of them going to six straight ALCSs and four World Series appearances, in none of that stretch did they trail by this many games at this point in the season. A team riddled with injuries. Just saying. I'm not ready to jump there yet. But just uh, just, just, just sharing nuggets of information. That's all. That's all I'm doing. We got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, Oklahoma, third straight national championship in softball. D'Lo and I will recap it for you. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to The Game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. The three-peat has taken place, unfortunately, at least in my book, because, of course, I attended Florida State, so I was rooting for the Knolls last night. Um, but, you know, there's there's times where you lose a championship like that and you feel like you got, you know, let one get away, a couple of plays here and there, could have changed it. I don't think anybody's thinking that. Oklahoma's a superior team. Um, and the funny thing is I think Florida State's probably pretty clearly the second-best team in the country, but it's that much of a gap between them and the number one team in Oklahoma um, it sure does, and we've talked about this a little bit before, it sure does feel like the UConn run of the uh, mid-2010s with Gino Oriema when they were just, you know, dominant every year. And, you know, if a team could keep it within single digits, it would be exciting, right, down the stretch. I agree with that, and, and you say last night, but you don't think if Coleman doesn't rob the home run 
that the outcome of the game might have been different? Oh, I mean, absolutely. But she did, and like, yeah, that's I, I know, the, and, yeah, and and she did it last year as well, right? This right. is what she does. But that was a huge moment last, in last so, night's game. Yeah, and I, and I wrote a couple things down during this. I will say this. I talked a lot about how like unbelievably focused and fired up and excited to play Oklahoma seemed in game one. It wasn't the same level of intensity, which like, and I talked about this with Foot. It's, it's next to impossible to keep that level of intensity for one game entirely through, which is what they did. Uh, much less another. So I did think they came out, and Florida State actually did put some pressure on them early, forced a couple mistakes, which were uncharacteristic of Oklahoma. Um, Knowles didn't necessarily capitalize early on. It took until a couple of, um, you know, a solo shot from Mac Leonard actually ends up being the only run they get. So they certainly didn't take advantage. But yeah, you rob a three-run homer. Felt This game felt a little bit more like the UL Texas game um, for Florida State, where you play well. You definitely probably played well to win. You probably would have beat most teams you played on that day, um, but you're not going to beat that team. And, you know, look, when it got to the fifth inning and they brought Jordy Ball back out, it seemed like bad news. I did think Florida State made some adjustments and got better swings off of her, Um, but it's just it's next to impossible, again, to string together hard contact. You need a couple of breaks to go your way with some infield hits Mm -hmm. and some different things. Uh, They didn't get that. Oklahoma had some bunts magically spin back fair because of the chalk line. Um, you had a, a bunt put down that looked pretty decent, but spun back behind home play for a foul ball. Like you didn't get a couple of the small breaks that you needed. And again, let's let's also not kid ourselves. Oklahoma's the best team in the country. This is going to go down yes. easily yes. as one of the best softball teams of all time. Um, coincidentally, it'll probably be compared to the last team that beat Florida State in this championship series that Oklahoma had in 2021. That team was more offensive than this one. This one had, you know, Close to that good of an offense, maybe not quite as dominant, but also had elite, elite pitching, the best pitching staff in the country on top of it. So uh, there's certainly a conversation to be had. Oklahoma ends up losing one game. They go 61-1, and and their one loss was to Baylor in the first month of the season by a single run 5-4. to uh, I'm not sure we've ever seen dominance like that uh, at this level. Three straight national titles, sixth title in the last 10 years by the way, and a couple of runner-ups in that stretch as well. You mentioned the 61-1. and one. That's a 984 winning percentage for this season. 53-game win streak. Like, just yeah. an absolutely iconic, legendary run in softball. And it doesn't look... Look, these runs all of a sudden come to an end. It, it, it happened with UConn, right? All of a sudden, they're... they're it, what usually happens is that you believe that they're still in the midst of the run and all of a sudden they lose inexplicably in the postseason, right? We saw yeah. that with Golden. Or We've you, seen this with Golden State. We saw that with UConn, it, women's basketball. It, it happens. All of a sudden it'll just happen. A, and I think also catch a bad break one time. Yes. Uh, injury happens mm-hmm. and then That'll happen the funny thing well. too is even if, even if you're still that dominant program, sometimes the perception, especially with college athletics where recruiting plays such a factor, if, if you even have the perception that the dynasty runs over, then all of a sudden maybe a couple of those top five stars that you get every single year, one of them one of them or two of them goes elsewhere, maybe right, South Carolina in college right. basketball. Um, and then all of a sudden, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. But I, another thing, too, and I had to, you know, the, the Florida State group chat last night with some of my buddies, like that, they were all really frustrated about the way Oklahoma plays and all the spiking of the ball and stuff. And I had to, I had to say, look, guys, like this is, I love it. And even, again, I'm rooting for the Knowles, but like, the way Oklahoma plays, and I know some people will bring up 
that the way that gir- when girls do it, it's treated differently or something like that. I think that maybe plays a little bit of a role in it, but I think it's awesome how like locked in and focused and dominant that that team is. And I thought it was exciting to watch all year. Um, and this run, like I think, I don't know. I know people get upset about it. they didn't. It was not directed at their opponents. It wasn't directed at officials. It was directed to each other and themselves. Um, I thought they played the game with tremendous passion and fire, and I thought they played it the right way. So I wasn't offended or upset by anything that Oklahoma did throughout the series. I thought it was well played on both sides. I'd agree. And they were the two best teams in college softball this year. All apologies to UCLA, but Florida State was better than them. And look, Oklahoma just went off winning three straight national championships. If you're Florida State... It's frustrating, but you hung tough with the most dominant program in in college softball right now. And look, it took, if you're Florida State, you're like, well, we lost that game. It took Oklahoma robbing us of a three-run jack. I mean, you can look at that in some key moments in this game and go, we're not that far away. Now, they may be, but you can just kind of look at that and go, we went toe-to-toe with the best program of the last, in the last decade. Yeah, a tip of the cap to to Catherine Sandercock on an incredible career, which um, came to an end last night. She pitched well. Again, she kept them in the game. A couple of solo homers, too. That's what's so scary about Oklahoma in any of these situations, right? They didn't have – like, Catherine pitched so well, and she kept them off balance. They run into a couple of – it was back-to-back homers, and it's 2-1. They end up adding an insurance run, but that's all they needed. Um, and also for the bad news for the rest of the college softball world, including Florida State and here, the Louisiana Raging Cajuns, the LSU Tigers, and elsewhere, like majority of that Oklahoma roster was not seniors, and they're coming back. So, uh, yeah, not not optimal, not optimal for the rest of college softball. We'll see what happens next year, but um, they're going to be right back where they were this year, I would guess, uh, right back in Oklahoma City. Now, you know, again, it does become difficult to try to keep that level of dominance. They didn't show any issues with it this year. We'll see if they are, are able to keep that mentality, but they are they're going to be back with just as much or more talent, and that's that's a scary thought. Speaking of college and games on the diamond in particular, we got to take a timeout. But when we return, we're going to give you our final three previews for Super Regional Weekend. It all involves the SEC teams: Wake Forest versus Bama, Florida, South Carolina. LSU Kentucky that's coming up next right here on the game this is RP3 and company on the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles Southwest Louisiana's sports station your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros this is RP3 and company live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game 1037 Lafayette 1041 Lake Charles Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. The last few days here in RP3 and Company, we've been previewing all the super regional matchups, and we have our final three today. And of course, they involve the mighty SEC. And we're going to start off with Wake Forest, the number one overall seed, the top team in the country. They're taking on the 16 seed Alabama. Alabama surprise team, right? They were struggling. They fired their coach for allegedly placing bets on his own team, and then they rallied. They started playing better. They were tested and pushed in their regional, 
and they figured out a way. They got past Troy. They got past Nichols. They ended up winning their regional to advance to the Supers in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. They're going to be facing off against a team that, well, they were probably the most dominant team in the regional round across the board. Uh, Their offense exploded for 48 runs. (laughs) Just crushed the opponents. So Alabama comes into this matchup having been pushed by the likes of Nichols and Troy. And they survive their regional. And they make it to a super regional for the first time since 2010. So not taking anything away from the Crimson Tide. But Wake Forest absolutely demolished the competition at the plate. And here's the other thing about this, D'Lo. They have three, three stud pitchers. Now, Louder, Rhett Louder, he's the guy. He's the ace. He was the ace last year. He was just as good this year. McGraw... Finished strong to 2022. He developed into a legitimate number two starter for the Demon Deacons. The third guy was supposed to be Josh Hartle, big-time prospect coming out of high school. But he got injured. But guess what? They found someone in Sean Sullivan to simply step into that place. All three of them earned first-team All-ACC nods. This team can rake. This team can pitch its tail off. They look unstoppable to me. I like the Demon Deacons in a big way this weekend against Alabama. I'll, I'll go through some of the ridiculous numbers here. Um, it, and, and again, like the fact that Wake Forest plays in the ACC, because these are the numbers you would expect when you occasionally get like a really dominant, great team in a weak <clears throat> conference. That's what you would expect this to be. But it's not. They're in the ACC, the second-best baseball conference in the country by a lot. Again, there's kind of a gap. There is a gap from the SEC to ACC, but there's also a gap from the ACC to the Big 12 and everyone else. Um, Wake Forest has not a single pitcher, and I'm going to go, by the way, 10 innings pitch will be my like limit here. I think a guy who has you know less than 10 innings pitch probably doesn't count. They have one guy who has an ERA over 5.4, two guys only on their entire pitching staff, two, that have an ERA over 3.96. <laughs> That's every reliever and every starter. They have, yeah, you mentioned the three guys. Louder. Now, they, they went in their rotation for the first series, for the regional was Keener, Louder, Hartle. Yes. And then Sullivan came in behind Hartle. Those are kind of like the, the option 3A and 3B. Yeah. Um, so you're going to see those guys in some order, some form or fashion. Louder is ridiculous. I mean, 14-0 with a 177. Um, if there is a guy who's going to challenge Paul Skeens to be called the best pitcher in college baseball, it's Rhett Louder. Yes. Um, so you and might, he has a great head of hair, by the way. He does. He has some show lettuce. So you might think, well, if the pitching's that great for this team, then they must, you know, it must not be as great offensively. There might be a top five offensive team in the country as well. Uh, they hit 308 as a team. They have 117 home runs. They have two guys with 23 or more. They have f- uh, four guys that have at least 60 RBIs. I mean, it's just so. With all that being said, by the way, they haven't lost a series all year, and they haven't lost two games in a row at any point. Correct. Um, with all that being said, Bama's a team that's, like, dangerous. Man. Like, I don't know how to say it other than that. Bama's got a couple starters that can try and match you with Holman and McNary. If they get really good outings there, like, they can stay in this game, and they can stay in this series. Uh, Wake's 29-3 and at home. That's another thing that plays into this. Mm. Um, but it's not a traditionally intimidating, dominant place to play. Wake Forest has, like, its own set of uh, issues, and I've actually kind of 
talked. I used to have a, a friend of mine that worked in the marketing department there. Um, it's an interesting fan base. They will be there and they will be loud, but it's not like going into Alex Box, right? No. This isn't a passionate, tradition-rich program. So they're a little bit new to the idea of hosting a Super and making it a super intimidating place to play. And given that Alabama plays in the SEC, I think they're going to be able to come in there and not be overwhelmed by what what's in front of them. Um, so Bama can swing it as well. Like they, I don't think Bama wins the series. I, I would take Wake. But I do think Bama presents more of an issue than some of the other matchups they could have gotten. Um, and with all that being said, like you mentioned, Bama was one ground ball to shortstop with a decent throw away from being in a loser's bracket, and who knows what happens in their own regional if they go to loser's bracket. But they didn't, and Troy booted it, and that's where they are. So um, that's kind of that's kind of where I am. I more more to that series than I originally thought when I dug into it a little bit deeper with the way that Bama can maybe match them. Let's go over to what do you want to do next? Florida and South Carolina, I imagine. Right? I want to do Gators and Gamecocks. This. Super regional pits the number two national seed versus the number 15 national seed. I have been on record earlier this week saying that I was leaning towards South Carolina, and I still am. And I know that's not a popular pick because you're not for sure which South Carolina team is going to show up. That's the thing about the Gamecocks that is perplexing because this is a team this year that swept Florida. Swept them. Three-game series, took it. This is a team that went toe-to-toe with LSU when LSU was the number one ranked team in the country and took a split in two games. But this is also a team that lost three straight to Kentucky and stumbled down the stretch. And let's be honest, got housed a little bit by LSU in the SEC tournament. But then we are thought we thought I thought personally that South Carolina looked vulnerable in their regional, and then they just just they just went right through it, like it was, wasn't a big deal. So which South Carolina team is going to show up? If the team that showed up in its regional, if the team that showed up in the middle point of the season pops up, then they're going to win this super regional. Absolutely can. Florida's immensely talented. Florida should be going to Omaha. And look. And, and they had to fight for it, right, D'Lo? Had to stave off elimination to make it out of their own regional. They opened up that victory with, against Florida A&M. Then they fell to Texas Tech in loser's bla- uh, bracket. They beat UConn, and then they needed two victories over the Red Raiders. And they dominated them both times to win their own regional. South Carolina, meanwhile, well, their offense outscored their opponents 41-11 to 11 in their own regional. So once again... For me, it's all about South Carolina. It's not about Florida. Which Gamecocks team is going to show up? If it's the one that we saw during the middle of the season that swept Florida, they can win the Super Regional. If it's the one that showed up later in the season, then it could go easily the other way. Well, I see your which South Carolina team is going to show up, and I'll raise you which Florida team is going to show up because Florida's played inconsistent. And and it's funny, too. It's not really, you know, it doesn't feel like you should be saying that about a number two national seed that went 48 and 15. Um, But I've seen this team kind of mess around at times this year, and the regional was a good example of that. Mm -hmm. Losing to Texas Tech or or losing down in the loser's bracket than having to beat Texas Tech twice. Uh, That's interesting to me. And. You know, they have one of the best two-way players in the country, by the way. Um, he's not Shohei Otani, but Jack Caglianon, who has 31 home runs to lead college baseball and also is their uh, Friday night starter, Saturday starter, however you want to Also go a Golden Spikes finalist along with the two gentlemen from LSU. Right, and, you know, they also back that up. They've got some really good arms in the bullpen in Tyler Nesbitt, Philip Abner, 
Cade Fisher, among others. So, I don't know. Florida's the more talented team by a lot, but I also watched them struggle in the regional at times. I watched them play inconsistently. I watched them play Florida State a few times this year, and that was the worst Florida State team in the history of the program. And Florida messed around each time. Now, they ended up winning the game, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's not time to mess around when it gets to Supers, right? And they did it a little bit in the regional. They came out flat in that second game. I thought they played really poorly when they lost. Now, they came back and handled their business without much doubt in the next two, but you can't do that when it gets to better and better competition. I think South Carolina is a prime, prime example of that. And the Gamecocks are going to be confident because of what they did during the regular season. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with all that being said, I'll take Florida here. Um, I think there's just too much talent at the end of the day. That South Carolina team did overachieve to an extent. Um, but look, all three of these series, and we'll get to LSU and Kentucky after the break, all three of these series have clear favorites, and I think that's for good reason, but I think they all have like layers of intrigue when you look deeper that there's there's not a definitive dominant, you know, okay, this is going to be a blowout series in any of these, in my opinion, when you look at numbers. Now, can Wake show up and play like they did last week and blow uh, blow Alabama out of the water? It's possible. Yes. Can Florida do that? And can LSU do it? Can they solve Kentucky's little bunting and, and running around and kind of messing with you strategy by being dominant on the mound? That can happen, but will it? We'll see. we got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll talk LSU in Kentucky. That's how we'll wrap up our number one here on this Friday edition of RP3 and Company. You're listening to the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are some hosts that talk like they know everything. But you don't have to worry about our guy, RP3. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. That's because he never knows what he's talking about. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Back to the show in the know. RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Final Super Regional Preview, LSU-Kentucky, the one that we'll be carrying here on our airwaves this weekend, and if needed, on Monday. From the box, LSU making its 18,000th Super Regional. I'm embellishing, obviously. They face off against a Kentucky team that's only making its second ever appearance in a Super Regional. And the Wildcats... Struggled a little bit in their own regional. They lost to Indiana and rebounded with a win over West Virginia and then got revenge on the Hoosiers, beating them not once but twice. So they had to get three wins in two days to advance out of the Lexington Regional. LSU, meanwhile, after taking care of Cinderella Tulane, 7-2 with a complete game performance from Paul Skeens, they took down Oregon State not once but twice, over last weekend in games that were interrupted due to weather and delayed due to weather. They beat Oregon State, but the Beavers did score a total of 12 runs in those two games. But that was enough because LSU's lineup is absolutely filthy. And remember, the Tigers took two of three from the Wildcats at the box earlier this season. One of those games was a mercy rule game. But what did we think of this matchup this weekend at the box? Well, 
there's some layers to this. All right, LSU's a better team overall. I think that's pretty clear. Um, that first series was weird. I was actually there for the finale of that when it was on Saturday. It was a Thursday through Saturday series. And what happened on sat on Friday in the middle game was a kind of wild game that Kentucky wins 13-10. to 10. Uh, Pitching struggled. Ty Floyd wasn't great. Um, and it got weird, and Kentucky ends up winning the game. Friday night, LSU wins the game and scores 11 runs in the first two innings. They're up 11-1. to one. Um, But Kentucky kind of battled a little bit, but they were out of it right right away. They lose that game 16-6. to six. It, yep. it is worth mentioning that now, and I'm, now that I'm thinking a little bit deeper about it, I'm guessing that the reason it was the way it was, uh, Kentucky threw Zach Heise in this game. He only made that one start for the whole year. He gave up 11 runs in an inning and two-thirds. Um, I'm wondering if that was because it was a Thursday start to that series, if that's why they did it. Um, but then the, the Saturday finale was 7-6. It was competitive back and forth. Now, Skeens, it's brought up, and it was brought up by Kentucky in their game notes, I think, which was funny, uh, that <laughs> Skeens was tested a little bit, gave up four earned runs, five runs total on seven hits in six innings. I do think context is important, though. They, he was up 11-1 in the second, remember? So you have a tendency to say, let me just give my team some outs and some length here. Um, not focus on being as dominant. So I think that Correct. certainly plays into it. And why would you want to give LSU bulletin board material? But well, well, that's a discussion. Well, for I mean, day. it's you know, it's 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 game notes, and I, I don't know. Sometimes people find that stuff. Sometimes they don't. But anyway, back to Kentucky overall. They do play that interesting brand of baseball where they try and put pressure on you. However, it's been much more successful for them at home uh, in SEC series. Now on the road in the SEC because they didn't really play any tremendous non-conference opponents on the road. It was just Elon and I think Southern Illinois. They started at Alabama, and they won that series. Two out of three, they won the first game in 12 innings. They ended up winning two out of three at Bama. After that, though, they went at Georgia, lost two of three. At LSU, lost two of three. Uh, at Vandy, got swept. And at Tennessee, lost two of three. They did not play well on the road, specifically in SEC play. So I kind of wonder if some of that ability to put pressure and create different situations has to do with the home crowd being behind it, putting your team in, in, in adverse situations. I think this is a team that hasn't been here before. Um, I'm not saying they won't be ready for the moment, but I think they're going to struggle to experience Alex Box in a Super Regional and play well. So I think LSU has an advantage here. Um, but Kentucky does have some depth in the pitching staff. I think there may be a game where they're tested, but I do like LSU to be able to win this series and move on to Omaha. Poll question of the day. How many SEC teams will punch their tickets to Omaha? Two, three, or four. Right now, 48% of you say three. 35% say two. 17% say four. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Continue to leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll share them throughout today's show. That's going to do it for our number one of RP3 and Company. Our number two, we'll kick it off with James Yasko of the Lima Time Time Podcast. That's next right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3.
Hour number two has arrived here in RP3 and company on this Friday edition of the show as we gear up for Super Regional Weekend. Hour number one, we spent a lot of time giving you the final three previews of the NCAA Super Regionals. That also led us to our poll question of the day. How many SEC teams will advance to Omaha? Obviously, two will get there no matter what because we have two all-SEC matchups. Florida, South Carolina, LSU versus Kentucky. But can there be more than two? Can Tennessee beat Southern Miss in Hattiesburg and continue beefing about Applebee's? We'll see. Can Alabama pull off the unthinkable and take down the number one overall seed in Wake Forest? Go vote on our poll question. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. But we also dove into the Houston Astros because it was a terrible Thursday for the Strohs in a multitude of ways. And to break it all down for us, and maybe this conversation will also serve as a bit of therapy for our first guest on today's RP3 and Company from the Limited Time Time podcast and a Houston Chronicle contributor. James Yasko joins us now. James, good morning. Uh, sure. <laughs> Okay. I spent I spent all week at a at a soccer camp, uh, and yesterday took a folding table to the kneecap and got bit on the scrotum by a mosquito. So <laughs> this is perfect. Let's let's do this. <laughs> let's do this. Okay. So um, the big fella, let's start there, has to leave with an oblique strain. Uh, we expect to find out something about his injury status or how severe it is from the Astros, but. We know they like to take their players and put them in the witness protection program and never give us any updates on it. So how concerned are you about the big fella and the Astros' best player having to leave yesterday's game in Toronto? What's so weird about that whole situation is that they said that he started to experience tightness in the batting cage before the game. And I understand, like, you're, they're, they're feeling a little bit of the pressure of the Rangers um, who don't lose. Uh, anymore, and and so and Jordan is really you know you can you're starting to be able to count on Bregman. Um, I I don't understand why they let him play the game. Well, if he if he's experiencing oblique tightness and even if it's just minor, uh, you have to know. Uh, it, wouldn't it be better to just say like uh, he's a late scratch? We're going to give him a couple days off and 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 we'll just deal with the next two games rather than having to possibly miss Jordan's bat in the lineup for an extended period of time. On the same day that happens, we get a report that Lance McCullers Jr. had apparently escaped custody, but then injured himself, or rather had a setback in his rehabbing to come back to the team. Uh, We'll get a final decision on him early next week, is what Chandler Rome is reporting uh, does it sound like to you that Lance McCullers Jr. is not going to pitch at all for the Astros this year? I, yes, that, that's exactly what it sounds like. <clears throat> and if the Astros are describing it as a, as a setback, uh, then he's already dead. Um, so, you know, if, if they're being that forthcoming about uh, about the process and this quote-unquote rehab timeline, uh, then, it, then it must be pretty bad. So, I've, I've, I mean, I made a joke about how you know, and I don't, I don't remember exactly when I said this, but but it sounds like they're really slow walking the. He, he had Tommy John surgery last fall. Um, you, said last have, it, you said that last week. You said that last week on here. Week. 
that was a year ago. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, it, it doesn't sound like he's going to pitch uh, this year at all. Well, James, in other good news, um, Jose Abreu got picked <laughs> off a of second base after a couple of seeing-eye singles, so that don't let that two-for-four fool you. It was not a confident two-for-four. Um, your thoughts on him trying to be a base stealer? Well, not even really, just kind of getting caught napping there. I think I, I think we were. This is now uh, we're seeing Jose Abreu in panic mode uh, and just trying to make something happen in the hope that it sparks uh, some sort of offensive revival uh, or at least stops this very steep decline uh, that he's experienced in his time with Houston. So, um, I and li- listening to him after the game, like man, that 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 is a man who is defeated. Like he he needs. They need to send him to Cancun. They need to send him to Vegas for a few days. Like, let him let him get out of here and, and clear his head. Well, you know, with news of the McCullers injury, you know, or setback, whatever you want to call it, and, you know, this continued, Blanco looked good again the other night, but now it's starting to feel to me like these, you know, nice stories where it was like, oh, okay, J.P. France and, and Belak and Blanco, they're giving you nice little six-inning starts. That's fun. They'll be back down in AAA eventually, but at least they're helping you out right now. Now it's feeling like, to me, at least one of these guys has to be the, a guy the rest of the way. Like, are you confident that one or two or th- or all three of those guys can can continue what they're doing? I'm, I'm confident that one of them will be, uh, and I'm, but I'm not sure who that is just yet. J, uh, J.P. France looks like, you know, he, he looks like he's a service. He's, I'm not going to say he's the real deal, um, but but things have not gone the way that it was drawn up you know, in, in the off season. And it makes me wonder, you know, back when, when, when Jim Crane was, and Jeff Bagwell were cosplaying as, as the general managers of the Houston Astros, you know, in the early months of the off season, if they'd had someone that knew what they were doing, that had done this before, you know, there to sort of plan and, and take a realistic evaluation of the, of the organization, would the Astros be in this situation? And you can't plan on Luis Garcia needing Tommy John surgery. Uh, you cannot plan on Jose Urquidy being out for two and a half months. Uh, you could plan on Lance McCullers being hurt, um, but but would 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 having a, a legit general manager in November and early December would that have? And, and I, I, Dana Brown was hired in what January. Would would that have changed what this team looks like right now? Well, you know, I started to kind of think about, man, the Astros struggling out of nowhere after they were playing so well and all these injuries, but I kind of think I put my finger on it. They recognized that lead season came to an end and you didn't have any pain and suffering there, True. but they figured they had to pick up the slack. Do you think that's what happened here? I, I think I think this, this whole season has felt extremely personal as an attack against me specifically, so I would not put that past the Astros at all. <laughs> We're talking with James Yasko, the Lima Time Time podcast. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. So, Brantley, we don't believe we're going to see again. Lance McCullers Jr., we don't believe we're going to see hey, again. Brant- Brantley hit in the cage yesterday. He, he was doing sprints on the field. He was throwing on the field. Oh, my there, goodness, no. There's signs of life. There are signs of life in Toronto. He had to go where the smoke was. <laughs> Uh, he and they they got some thermal imaging, and Michael Brantley does in fact exist. He does in fact exist. Let me ask you this: Does it give you any trepidation whatsoever? I know it's early, and it's a 162 game season. It's getting later. 
Uh, it's getting it's, later. It's getting later. That, uh, that this team is only two games above 500 against teams that are above 500 overall. That they beat the bad teams and struggle against the good ones. Uh, well, in the past, it's been the it's been the other way around. So Correct. this is sort of new for the Astros. Like they they were always good to take three out of four in New York, uh, and then and then get swept in Oakland. Like that that's been the Astros' hallmark. Um, I mean, with the new schedule, everybody has to play everybody. So you know, it's it's concerning. Like it's, it's just there's something that's very 2016 about this team, where it's just not. It's not really clicking, and you can't quite put your finger on what that is. Well, that leads me to my next question, because they're five games behind the Rangers, and no time in this stretch of the six straight ALCSs that began in 2017 in the four World Series trips have the Astros been this far behind first place at this point this late in the season. It hasn't mm-hmm. happened. So... When is it time to maybe start going, okay, it's time to be a little concerned because the Rangers, they got some injuries to guys they're paying a ton of money to. It doesn't seem to impact them all that much. They're still winning games. The Rangers spent $775 million on free agents in the last two, in the last two off seasons. If they weren't this good, I, it, I, if I was a Rangers fan and, and the Rangers were rangering it up the way that they have done for the past few years, like I'd be mad as hell. But they should be good because they've spent the money. They've spent the money to do, to to be that good. So, you know, everyone everyone looking at the Rangers and like, no, oh, they have they don't have Degrom. Well, Degrom has between Degrom and Lance McCullers, they have two good arms between them. Um, <laughs> the I mean. Yeah, it's time to be concerned. The, the Rangers are good. They've spent money. They've got a competent general manager that they did not have in John Daniels. Uh, so, yeah, no, it is absolutely time to be concerned about the Rangers and be mentally prepared for how absolutely insufferable their fans are going to be should they pull this off. We'll wrap it up with this. You know, for the longest time, I thought they'll be proactive by the tread deadline and bring in another arm. And maybe it's another just, you know, they'll be aggressive to try to shore up their pitching. But in the last few weeks, I've changed my mind on that, James. It sure does feel like I think Houston's going to try to go out and get themselves a bat. Even before Alvarez had to leave yesterday's game, do you think that's going to be their approach? I think they're going to, I think, because I trust Dana Brown. I, I, I think they will they will do whatever that whatever they feel like they need to do whatever they need to whatever move is available that improves this team to continue this little window um, it's certainly not time to like blow it up or anything like that um, but, but they're gonna they're gonna be active in the in the market um, and whichever move makes the most sense for Dana Brown he's gonna make that move does it make you feel any better about what's happening with the Astros knowing that Justin Verlander, who was the Major League Baseball ERA leader last year, is currently has a 4.85 ERA. <laughs> uh, I mean, death comes for us all. I mean, death is undefeated, so uh, I take no pleasure in it. But This is what know. happens when you go to the Mets. This is what yeah. you deserve. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it, 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 they were mispronouncing Shea Stadium. It's actually Sheol. Uh, and and if you go to if you go to Queens, it's it's hell. It is absolute hell. <laughs> I mean, 
In the last 24 hours, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, the Mets co-aces, at $43 million a year each, by the way. That's what the Mets doled out for their two aces. Combined to pitch 8.2 innings against my Braves, throwing an amazing 185 pitches while giving up 10 runs and 18 hits. Yeah, Things are yeah. going well in Queens. It, 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 every, it's, everything's going according to according to how it is how it has been decided like that that it, it, there's there are no surprises it's all been set up manfred's rigged it whatever i love when the mets are suffering it <laughs> brings me so much joy james appreciate your time when's the latest episode of the lima time time podcast gonna drop brother i need to check with pat uh we recorded the 200th episode earlier this week and i have not i've been extremely busy so i haven't been on twitter as much but i need to i need to so it, it, if it hasn't already dropped then it'll drop very soon and we'll record again here in the next few days are you sure he didn't get lost in the smoke from canada um no no uh, getting lost in canadian wildfire smoke is extremely on brand for pat <laughs> appreciate your time brother enjoy your weekend have a good one this is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru, oof, and I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Do I feel bad about inserting my Atlanta Braves into the conversation with James Yasko? I do not because the Mets are doing Met things. By the way, another Mets thing. The Braves, my Braves, swept the Metropolitans despite the Mets having an 85% win probability or higher at one point in all three games in the series. No one Mets it better than the Mets. No one. No one. I found it moderately unnecessary that they were mentioned in the last segment, but I, I wasn't going to say anything. Hey, man, we talk about your Astros all the time. It's only fair that we squeeze in some Braves talk. And you know what? We got Braves fans here, too, by the way. They listen to the show. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We don't carry Braves games, though. Oh! <laughs> I'm just joking. It's fine. Oh, wow. So I guess and by that theory, we shouldn't talk Raging Cajuns at all since we don't carry their games. Or Saints or Chiefs or, or Detroit McNeese. Pistons or... Yeah, Calgary Flames or <laughs> we just we just we just went off into hockey, didn't we? Well, I'm just saying we don't carry any of those. So yeah, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, no. Look, it was um, 13 to 10, right? Rysel Iglesias gets the win. That doesn't happen every night. No, it does not. Um, no, it does not. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Foot. By the way, I'm not a big Pete Alonso guy. I've just been yeah. Every time I see him talk, and it's not, and I'm not a big hating guys guy. So I don't, you know, I don't hate Pete Alonso. He's a great player, but. I don't know. Something about a 
I don't, I don't. He doesn't pass the vibe check for me. It, it, it's a Mets thing. It's got to be right. <laughs> it's a. It's a. Let, let me break this down for it's. It's a Mets. And thing. I've liked the Mets for most of my life because David Wright was my first like you know favorite player ever, and um you know I don't root hard for them, but I I mean I like the Mets. But man, you saw that graphic too about the the Mets rotation at one time, which was uh you know the the big kind of. Harvey, DeGrom, um, Stephen Matz, Zach yep. Wheeler, and, and essentially, and, and Noah Syndergaard. And um, it's not going well for any of them, except Zach Wheeler, who went into the eighth inning with a no-hitter last night. So Zach's, Zach's doing all right. The rest of them have... Stephen Matz has disappeared. Matt Harvey's out of the league. The Mets... Syndergaard's ERA's like 23. It's just... The, the, the Mets somehow know how to ruin players' careers. It's usually, it's just usually, it's usually that's how that works. How about a poll question of the day? How many SEC teams will punch their ticket to Omaha? Now we know you're going to at least get two because we have two All SEC matchups: LSU versus Kentucky. By the way, you'll be able to listen to that entire Super Regional series right here on the game. Saturday's game first pitch is at two o'clock. Pre-game begins at one thirty. We'll have it for you right here on the game. Yours truly will be in attendance covering it when sunday's game anybody's guess no one knows yet and uh, by the way every super regional i just checked it every single super regional has tbd for sunday's games so um that is correct because they want to know and us to find out yeah i gotta love that how many sec teams will punch their ticket to omaha right now 44 percent of you just say two 41 percent say three so obviously you either believe tennessee can beat southern miss in hattiesburg or Alabama can pull off the massive upset and taking down number one Wake Forest. 15% of you are ultra-optimistic, saying that four teams from the SEC will make it to Omaha. Now, that's what happened last year, I do believe, if I remember right, right? It was Auburn, Arkansas, Ole Miss, Miss, and Texas A&M. I believe it was the four. Let's get to some comments. Ralph says... Well, you have two automatics, all SEC supers. I think Tennessee beats Southern Miss, so I'll say three. Bama could beat Wake, but I wouldn't bet on it, although some Crimson Tide faithful might. Uh, oh, see, that's a, that's, that, that's a good joke. Is, is the former coach still faithful? I'm not really for sure if that's the case. <laughs> he also says, Rocco's better uh, get those purple and gold jello shots ready because the Tigers are coming back to Omaha. Yeah, I saw the joke because yep. Arkansas, yep. by a country mile, bought the most shots at that bar in Omaha last year. And everyone was like, they're sad because Arkansas won't be going back. But look, if LSU gets there, the LSU faithful will take care of that. Yeah, That's I was thinking of that too the other day. It, it's it's highly unlikely, but if you ever had a World Series in which the Louisiana Rage Cajuns, the LSU Tigers, and the Tulane Green Wave all made their way to Omaha – like, I don't know if that place would, would be able to keep up. I really Drink don't. it dry. John Paul Cajun Daddy says, there will also be zero Big Ten teams as the best baseball talent chooses to play in the southeastern part of the country. College baseball will die in the northeast and mountain west. NILs will expedite that process. I was not ready yeah, I don't, for I that conversation okay. today. John Paul coming in from left field. Wake's not exactly southern, and they're kind of the best team in the country right now. You don't, you don't consider North Carolina Southern? Well, but it's 
it's Winston's the northern part of North Carolina, or, or, or I have to check that exactly. Uh, it's kind of a geography long state, but um, I mean, somewhat, but not like southern, southern. I don't know. I saw that conversation on Twitter the other day too. Anyway, my point was just that, like you know, they're not your typical baseball powerhouse, and yet they're like the unequivocal best team in the country right now. It doesn't mean they're going to win the title, but correct. Because that, as we as we know, has been the kiss of death. Like we've seen, we've seen Big Ten teams make. You know, Michigan's had runs recently, so I, I don't know. Correct. I don't know. Notre Dame's had runs. And they're from Big Ten country, right? Indiana. So, right. So keep those comments coming on the poll question of the day. Right now, once again, forty four percent of you say two SEC teams will punch their tickets to Omaha. That will happen no matter what. By the way. 41% of you say three, and 15% say four. My dad quickly chimed in and told me Winston-Salem's in the northwest portion of North Carolina, which I should know because I've been multiple times. But anyway, there you go. Oh, Papa Iserlo coming in. The ice quick. man. It was a quick, I mean, I, because you, yeah, that was quick. Quick response. <laughs> uh, shout out to him for being part of the show. Absolutely. Can't wait for him to uh, be part of the show when we switch over to middays and he can come on his lunch break. There you go. See? Make it a little bit more convenient. Certainly. Just saying. Got to take a timeout. When we return, though, we're going to talk more about the Baton Rouge Super Regional between LSU and Kentucky. As Bill Frank has, the voice of Outbox Stadium will be joining us live next, right here on the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Welcome back to RP3 and Company on this Friday edition of the show as we gear up for Super Regional Weekend. LSU will be taking on Kentucky. Game one will be Saturday. First pitch set for 2 o'clock. Pre-game will begin at 1.30. You can hear it all right here on the game. You're home for LSU Athletics in southwest Louisiana. And to give us a preview of the Super Regional is the man who has been associated with the program for decades the voice of Oxbox Stadium, Bill Frankes, joins us now. Bill, good morning, brother. How are you, my friend? Um, good morning. I'm doing pretty well. Everything is uh, ready to roll here. We've got, uh, <clears throat> I guess you call it the, practice, the official NCAA practice days today. Both teams will be practicing LSU uh, this morning from 10 to noon, and then Kentucky at, from 1230 to 230, and each team meets with the media after their practice. So, yeah, we're we're officially uh into the ncaa mode now of uh, preparing for the weekend and uh definitely looking forward to it it's great uh, lsu hasn't hosted a super regional in four years so it's uh it's going to be very exciting here at, uh, around the stadium and uh you know i think that i think our fans are, are hungry for for an opportunity to get back to omaha because because it's been a while it has been a while. Remember that 2019 that would have been the super regional series against florida state there at the box right um, I, I was there for that. What's the vibe like around the program right now and over there in Baton Rouge about hosting a Super Regional for the first time since 2019? And this team is a legitimate chance of making it back to Omaha. 
Yeah, I mean, this is something that um, when the team first met back in August for the start of the fall semester, this is this is the goal that they aspired to, and you know, they they so far they've met every requirement on that path to get to Omaha, and now they're two wins away. So yeah, there's naturally a, a lot of um, excitement about the opportunity, but also. It, one thing that this team has done, and, and Coach Johnson has really stressed, is that they tried not to make any situation too big. They, they tried to treat every single game played this year, all 56 games in the regular season and, and the postseason, should just treat every game the same. Every game's a playoff game in their mind. Every game has the similar significance. So applying that philosophy this weekend, they're, they're saying, look, look, we, we this is the same mindset we've had the entire year every game is a playoff game and these games really are playoff games but the fact that they've applied that mentality throughout the year it allows them to to stay um level-headed and not get too amped up not get too excited just realize that the goal is in front of them the goal they've worked for since august and they're two wins away from it and they just need to keep doing what they've been doing and they feel like if that happens then, then they'll have success it caused a bit of buzz last weekend on Friday when Jay made the surprising move to start Paul Skeens against Tulane. Yeah. People were like, oh, well, what's going on? Well, it worked out, especially after weather wrecked havoc yeah. during the regional. And now you have your ace and the country's best pitcher going to be able to start off the super regional against a very good Kentucky team. Yeah. Um, Give me your thoughts on that decision by Jay, and give me your thoughts on how the rest of the pitching performed in the regionals. Yeah, I, I, you know, naturally, uh, even, even I was considered that to be a bit of a, a risk to, to start your number one pitcher against the four seed in a regional, which uh, you know, these days it's, it's extremely rare. But it did work out uh, very well. Uh, he, you know, Jay and. Um, Wes Johnson, our pitching coach, who I'm sure you, everyone knows, will be leaving LSU after the season to become the head coach at Georgia. But Jay and Wes do a, a very thorough job of studying the opposition, and they feel like they can create the best possible matchups by their their thorough scouting of opposing hitters. And they felt like that you know the, the pitchers behind Paul were good matchups for Oregon State or Sam Houston. Of course, as it turned out, we ended up playing Oregon State twice. And so they felt confident that uh, with Paul, they could obviously have a great chance to win the game one and then put us in a good position to win the rest of the tournament. And uh, I think the weather also, I, I think they thought you know, the weather could be a factor. They did not want to be in a situation where uh, Paul only threw three innings and then that was it for the weekend. So they felt confident that they that on Friday that uh, we could play without any issues. And I think that was a factor as well. Now that's going to be a factor this weekend too. You know, tomorrow is always a chance at this time of year, as you guys know, in South Louisiana, there's always a chance of thunderstorms and pop-up showers and the two o'clock game time tomorrow. So I know that's going to be something to watch is make sure that we start the game in a window where we're not going to be stopping after two or three innings. And then the number one pitcher in the country is done for the weekend. So that's going to be a big-time factor this weekend. But going back to last weekend, the, the, I thought um, Thatcher Hurd has been a real big story in recent weeks, the way he's emerged. 
Uh, he came in after the rain delay in Game 2 in relief of Ty Floyd and was exceptional, career-high 12 strikeouts. On In Game 3, you had a combination of Riley Cooper and Griffin Herring, who those two lefties both did a very effective job, along with Nate Ackenhausen, three lefties, all did a very effective job. So, yeah, I was impressed with the way the pitching has stepped up, but we saw signs of it in the SEC tournament. The LSU went one and two in the SEC tournament. I thought the relief pitching was very effective uh, in those three games in Hoover, and it, it continued uh, last weekend. So, uh, yeah, I think I think there's reason to be encouraged about the way the pitching uh, has emerged uh, behind schemes, and uh, hopefully that'll be a something that'll be prominent again this weekend. Well, Bill, you hinted at it there, so that's where I'll go here. What do you think of the pitching plan this weekend? I think, I guess, on paper you go uh, Skeens on normal rest, Ty Floyd, and then kind of figure it out whether it's stature hurt or if you have to use him right. in a different role. But, A, do you think the weather does factor into Jay Johnson's decision? And then, B, do you think he decides to switch things up again the way he did in the regional? You know, I would doubt he would switch it. I think he'll, he'll um, since we're playing one opponent, and it, this is very simple. This would be, you know, almost exactly like playing an SEC weekend series. So I, I don't think he he would consider switching anything. I mean, unless obviously we know in advance the weather's going to going to be a huge factor. Uh, I think we almost certainly will see Paul in at, at the start of tomorrow's game. Hopefully, we'll be starting on time. And like I said, there will be a significant window where we don't have any lightning. You know, the NCAA is very strict about uh, stopping games. If there's any lightning within eight miles of the stadium, then the, the game must be halted. And you know, it could be perfectly sunny in the immediate area with no rain in sight, but if there's a lightning detected within eight miles of the stadium, then you know we're shut down for at least 30 minutes. So uh, I know that that's something to be very aware of. But I, I would, at this point, I would anticipate you'd, you'd see Paul start game one uh, Ty Floyd start game two, and then game three, you know, you could have a lot of options. You know, Thatcher Hurd is kind of that wild card. If Thatcher Hurd is needed in relief in games one or two, then, of course, LSU will use him. If he's not needed in relief in games one and two and we have to play a game three, then you might see Thatcher start game three. But, of course, as we saw last weekend, there are other options with, with Riley Cooper uh, certainly being among them. When you look at this week's opponent, the Kentucky Wildcats, you know, LSU took two or three from them. They've had a uh, kind of surprisingly good year, and they haven't necessarily been in this situation a ton of times. How much do you think that factors in, and what kind of challenges do they present here in in the second meeting between the two teams? Yeah, they they present a lot of challenges. You know, before we played them in the regular season, which was in mid-April, Jay talked a lot about how they're going to be different than, than all the other SEC teams that we play. They, I guess, are they are the prototypical, uh, what you would call the small ball team. Love to bunt, love to steal bases. They have 91 stolen bases in 120 attempts this year. They have 55 sacrifice bunts. So they play that uh, kind of old-school West Coast type of baseball uh, with a lot of station-to-station manufacturing runs. It's been very effective for them. They've only, they've only hit 51 home runs. They're not a power-hitting club, but still a very potent offensive club, uh, batting average of two ninety three overall. Uh, they have a lot of weapons in their lineup, and they, they really you know, they, they, uh, they are very effective against us. They cause some problems with that small ball, particularly in Game 2 
they put up 13 runs against us in Game 2 of the regular season series. Now, LSU had an awful day defensively on that particular day that contributed to Kentucky's offense. But uh, they're capable of, uh, of causing a lot of problems because of the, the type of offense they run. Nick Mingione, uh, the head coach, who, by the way, Jay Johnson is very close friends with. Those guys go back a long way uh, from some time on the West Coast. Uh, he's done a – Coach Johnson says that Mingione's done a fantastic job of building his roster to fit that philosophy – and and those guys are going to be ready to play, and they're very. I guess you they're, they're kind of described as a gritty team, and they have surprised. No one expected Kentucky to be in this position. It's only the second time uh, they've played in a super regional, and they've never been to Omaha. So naturally, I mean, their kids are going to be really uh, excited to be back in Baton Rouge. They're not going to be intimidated by that atmosphere. They've been there. They they were here just two months ago. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of challenges involved in playing this type of team because it's 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 different than, than most of the teams that we play during the year. Bill, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this. We've spent a lot of time talking about how this is only Kentucky's second ever trip to a Super Regional. They're not accustomed to this. LSU is a program that, you know, goes to Super Regionals all the time. But this group mm-hmm. of Tigers that are going to be wearing the purple and gold this weekend, they haven't. Right. And and that's going to be key here. Uh, how much of a factor is it for Jay to make sure his team doesn't get too worked up by the moment and being able yeah. to play in a super regional and to be so close to Omaha, especially in an electric atmosphere that the box will be this weekend? Yeah, I think it, again, I think it goes back to the just applying that mindset that they've used the entire season that every game is a playoff game no game is bigger than the other and that that will continue this weekend that they you know that they've considered the midweek game against a state school to be just as significant as an sec weekend to be just as significant as what we're facing this weekend so every game is a playoff game every game has significance Let's not make this bigger than any other game we played all year. It's a weekend at the box. It's going to be a huge crowd. There's a lot on the line, but uh, we'll be ready for it. And I think that's the way they're they're going to gonna, uh, um, approach it. It's very very businesslike. Let's keep let's do what we've been doing all year. And if we can do that, it, like Jay says, let, let's slow our heartbeats down. Let's uh, let's just uh, control the strike zone. And, uh, and 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 play in character. That's another term he likes to use. So they, I think if the Tigers play in character as they have all year, then they have a great chance. Bill, always appreciate your time, brother. Thank you so much, and uh, have a great weekend there with everything that you do. You just don't do one job, brother. You do multiple ones. <laughs> it's going to be a busy weekend, I know, but yep. uh, do what you always do, brother. Be tremendous. Thank I you so much. That. Well, thank you all so much. Uh, enjoy being with you all. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Want to join in the discussion with RP3? Then just give us a call on the hotline. You know the number. 2-4-9-5-6-7-8. I can't hear you. You're trailing off. And did I catch a niner in there? Were you calling from a walkie-talkie? No need to be embarrassed. Just call us at 337-706-0111.
Back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Poll question of the day. How many SEC teams will be able to punch their ticket to Omaha this weekend? We know we're going to at least get two. Florida versus South Carolina in one Super Regional there in Gainesville. LSU versus Kentucky in the Baton Rouge Super Regional. So we're guaranteed at least two teams making it to Omaha. But we also have two other teams. Alabama trying to take down the number one overall seed and and a team that looks like an unstoppable machine, the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Great nickname, by the way. The other one, Tennessee, Southern Miss in Hattiesburg. Shout out to the volunteer fans for being classy and starting beef over Applebee's locations not being in Hattiesburg. You know, just when you thought like last year Tennessee became the villains of college baseball and they kind of embraced that and, and, you know, they had to be humbled by not making it to Omaha. And this year you're like, well, they struggled a little bit, but they found themselves. They're scrappy. They kind of toned down their antics. But the volunteer fan base said, hold up, we got you. I I don't know if you know this, because I don't even think I shared it with you, but this week I actually made plans. I had tickets. I was ready to go. I was going to Hattiesburg for the Supers. But when I found out there wasn't an Applebee's in Hattiesburg, I canceled it right away. (laughs) I can't be going if I'm not eating good in the neighborhood while I'm there. So those plans got derailed. And, I mean, it's just simple as that. If it was in Knoxville, I'd know I'd I'd have been able to find an Applebee's without any issues. So, oh, well. Uh, the only thing I think about during this whole thing, I just I just think of Talladega Nights. That's all I think about. That's all I think about. And how Ricky Bobby and, and Reese Bobby and the family at the Applebee's. Oh, Tennessee. Uh, don't you ever change, volunteer fans. How many SEC teams will punch their ticket to Omaha? Right now, 45% of you, it's switched a little bit here. 45% say three. 42% say only two. You don't think Tennessee and you don't think Alabama have a chance. But 13% of you are SEC, SEC, SEC guys. And you're like, they're going to be four. Bama's taking down Wake. Tennessee's taking down Southern Miss. And here we go. I don't know how I feel about that. I... I don't know if you were going to read any comments, but I I, I was going to say... I mean, I was, but let's listen to you first. No, look, I think Southern Miss... I give Southern Miss a very slight advantage. I'd go like 51%, 49%, but I think that series is essentially a toss-up. I agree. Um, If you're going data analysis here, the statistical advantage in the poll question, your advantage is going to be, say, three. Because even if you give Tennessee... Uh, a less than 50% chance, you get the added-in bonus percentage likelihood of uh, Alabama pulling off the upset, which, while low, is still a percentage likelihood. Right? So you're going to then add that in, and your percentages are going to lean towards the three option being your best choice. Now, the reason you don't want to go four is because you're going to need that percentage to get way up over 75% between the two. But if you pick three, you're getting all the benefit of the 50% from the Tennessee Southern Miss series with the added little bonus, which puts you above the, the threshold there, with the Wake Forest Alabama series, the two is the safest pick as far as you know guaranteed numbers, but that's only because there's two guarantees. So three is your statistical best option here, but I wouldn't be shocked if it's only two. I'd be very surprised if it was four. Look at the big brain with the data analysis talking points on D-Lo. It's 
That's what he brings to the show, people. That's what he brings to the station. Analysis, intelligence, thought-provoking data just spews out of his mouth with ease. I say three. That's what I voted. I say three. And I like Tennessee. As much as it pains me to give any sort of compliment to the volunteers, I like their chances of beating Southern Miss. I don't believe Alabama has a chance against Wake Forest. I mean, there's always a chance because it's baseball. But I will be stunned if the Crimson Tide take down the Demon Deacons. B-Rad on the Twitter says three, LSU, Florida, and Tennessee. That's how he's rolling. Uh, it's not. I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. As for baseball north of the Mason-Dixon, let's not forget that Michigan played for the national championship in 2019. With that said, go Tigers. B-Rad's comment is about John Paul's comment that, you know, Big Ten teams, zero Big Ten teams, but Michigan has played for a national championship in just literally a few years ago. So it wasn't that long ago here. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Vote and the leave the comments. That's what I want you to do. It's twofold. Go vote. And then if you're so bold on this Friday edition of RP3 and Company, leave some comments. Two hours are in the books. How are we going to possibly top what we've already done? How about a jam-packed hour number three? Dawson doing a deep dive on CP3 perceptions being wrong. And we'll talk NBA Finals with Dan Favalli of Bleacher Report. That's all up next right here on The Game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything. Everything. Everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Eight oh three has arrived on this Friday edition of RP3 and Company, which means the final hour of today and of the week is upon us. Coming up half an hour from right now, Dan Favalli will be joining us. NBA reporter, columnist from Bleacher Report. Help us talk a little NBA finals. That's on tap. Also, don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day. We've been talking a lot about it. Obviously, it's NCAA Super Regional Weekend. How many SEC teams are going to punch their tickets to Omaha? we got LSU versus Kentucky. we got Florida versus South Carolina. That means we at least get two teams from the SEC playing at the College World Series. But can Tennessee take down Southern Miss in Hattiesburg? Or can Alabama take down number one Wake Forest? Go vote on that. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. We also dove in this morning here on the show talking about a tremendously terrible Thursday for the Houston Astros. They lose their third straight game. Drop the series to the Toronto Blue Jays. Bats, once again, not getting the hits. After going off in game one of the series, they were held to just a handful of runs in the next three games. Lineup, not getting the job done. Jeremy Pena, not giving forth effort in a close game, a one-run game where maybe you beat that throw out at first base 
It could change things. But Pena loafed it up a little bit. But that wasn't nearly the worst thing that happened during the game. Abreu, who has been driving the struggle bus all season long, got caught doing boneheaded things on the base paths. So bats aren't hitting. Abreu's doing boneheaded things. Jeremy Pena's not giving forth effort. And then on top of it, the big fellow, the Astros' best player, the guy who's really carried this team this season with Altuve being out and Brantley being out and Bregman starting off the season slow, Jeremy Pena batting around 250. Tucker has had his issues. has been Jordan Alvarez, the big fella. He leaves yesterday's game with an oblique strain. Ooh. And on top of all of this, we have reports yesterday that Lance McCullers Jr. has had a quote-unquote setback in his rehab assignment to come back to the team. There'll be a decision made about his future on Monday. Well, that sure does sound like he's not going to pitch for the rest of the year. So, Lance McCullers Jr. has had a setback. Jordan Alvarez has an oblique strain. The team not hitting very well. Some guys not giving forth effort. Others doing boneheaded decisions on the base paths. And we keep saying that it's a long season. And that is the truth, D'Lo. It's 162 games. And they're five games behind the Texas Rangers. And guess what? The Rangers look to be pretty good. They've spent a ton of money, as our friend James Lasco, James Yasko, rather, from the Lima Time Time podcast told us earlier, the last two off-seasons, and it's starting to finally pay off as they hold a five-game cushion over the Astros. But during their run of six straight ALCS appearances, they've never been this far behind first place at this late in the season. I don't even think it's this late, huh? It's, I think it's at any point. Um, I believe it's at any but, point. Now, you're not counting the shortened season, right, because of the pandemic. We're not counting that in that equation. And look, it's only five games. So I, I don't believe it's panic time yet. There are some of the diehard Houston Astros fans who are, who are quickly getting to that point. It's not panic time. It's not time to eject on the season or anything crazy like that. But there are some things where it, it feels like every time the Strohs, D'Lo, take a step forward this season, they take two steps back. Well, my answer to that would be baseball has ebbs and flows inevitably. And again, I, I, let's, I let's remember that, four days but ago. But, but that's a generalization. When, when, when I, it, you have to look at it in a, in a different perspective. This is a team that's been to six straight ALCSs and four trips to the World Series. Their standard is higher than everyone else's. That's what comes with success. You, it comes with higher standards and expectations. Right. I think it's safe to say that they're not playing to what the Houston Astros standard has been the last six years. Is, is that fair to say? Right, yes. But at, There we go. But four days ago, they were. 
Like they were one of the hottest teams in baseball. They had just come off of multiple series wins in a row and some impressive performances. But the injuries so. to the pitching staff have still been there, and the injuries to the lineup have still been there, Yeah, and even the, with the wins. And the good thing is the injuries to the pitching staff just really, again, haven't hurt you. If, if Urquidy was pitching and he had J.P. France's numbers, you would be fine with that. If Luis Garcia was pitching and he had Ronald Blanco's numbers, we'd be fine with it. So the starting pitching injury specifically, McCullers, Garcia, and Urquidy, I don't want to say it's had zero impact, but it's hmm. been close to zero in my opinion. It really has. Like you have gotten Belak, Blanco, and France have been what you would be perfectly fine with with McCullers, Arquiti, and Garcia. Maybe Garcia and McCullers at their peak are a little better than what France and, and Belak have been, but it my point is there is it's not significant. The bullpen issues, it's not even injuries there. It's mostly just Montero hasn't been good and he was great last year. Um and that's something that you know, Montero, he had a good inning last night, so we'll see if that turns into anything. But uh, overall, it's still been – Phil Maton's been really, really good. Um, Hector Neris has been really, really good. Uh, Presley's been not quite Presley level, but good enough and hasn't, you know, blown a ridiculous number of saves. But so. he's always been throughout yeah, a has, season inconsistent, yeah, right? And, and, and that's kind of his, his DNA. His postseason history and kind of track record tells you he'll figure things out here. Um, the biggest actual question mark for me at this point is is offensively, which is not something I was expecting to say. My expectations for Jeremy Pena were always, and I've said this before, what he's doing right now is what I think the major league player that he is uh, offensively. And he's a two fifty guy. If he gets, like. if he gives you, you know, if he improves and finds some things throughout his career and becomes a plus guy in in, in the average category, that'll be great. He hits for uh, good power with that two fifty average. It's not an empty two fifty. It's not the same as no. Um, what Dubon does while he's hitting two ninety. So I think all that's fine. Oh, the man just had to throw shade at Dubon. It's not shade. It's just who he is. It's statistical fact. And he's been um, a huge yeah no he's asset been, look, it's for been, you. It's been but, valuable. But, but it's the way you say it. It's the way you phrase when you talk about Dubon. Well, because the you're, thing you're, that you're really so rubs me the wrong positive way. Positive about Pena. Well, you know Jeremy is what it is, and then it's like, well, it's not like Dubon and what he does. It's it's. It's a little bit of an attitude towards a guy that had to be put in a situation that he had no, to step Dubon up. Dubon has been perfectly acceptable. My there we point go. Give there him some is some of his flowers. Come on now. Yeah, absolutely. That's all I he has he has stepped up greatly. And look, when last year because the thing is last year there was no power production and the average was terrible. So oh, that's yes. why you're oh, concerned. Yes. My point there is I know a lot of and it's like a typical thing of baseball fans to do and I don't blame them. They just look at average and, you know, numbers like that and then that's the end of it. When I'm telling you, Dubon's average, and that's why the Altuve comparisons I thought were ridiculous. Oh, they were, Altuve's, they were crazy. They were crazy. His production is just tremendously more valuable than what Dubon is. But I is. do think Astro fans and maybe even the Strohs thought they would get more. They, th- I think they thought maybe Pena was going to be more of a dynamic offensive player based on what he did in the postseason. Yeah, and that's fair. But I, and, and but I do time. agree with you. I think this is who he is, right? He's a, like a two fifty hitter that can hit for power. And there's time. Like let's, you know, Correct. Carlos Correa he's only has a had second struggles, year, right? right? He's only a second year guy. He's, but a he's young not player. Carlos. He's no. not. He's not that player. I think that's been part of the offensive part. Not having Brantley when you thought you were going to have him, he was going to be a steady force. Right. Tucker's been kind of inconsistent. You always know Bregman's going to be a slow starter because he always is. But I think they were really banking on Abreu being one of those guys. And he has not been that guy. And again, I don't blame the process here. Like when you take a look at who was available in the market, what the Astros wanted to spend, uh, where they were before with Guriel, who, by the way, struggled last year. Um, the slash numbers for Guriel and Abreu at this point in the season, the two years, are like remarkably similar. So correct. They went out, got a guy who has been 
a dynamic, powerful, impressive hitter for most of his career. He's been a good power hitter. Has seen some yes. drop-offs at times, but again, like not not off a cliff, not expecting this. So did they overpay in that situation? Look, MLB Free Agency <sighs> is about market, and this that's what they had to pay to get Correct. Him. I think it was a good decision at the time. And, and they would have been upset out. if they didn't make a move, right? That that That's the other part of it. I, I I do think the lineup still has an opportunity, right? Once again, this is why I led off the, the conversation. It's not time to hit the panic button. But there are things to kind of look at where you go, I'm a little surprised that they're not better. And I think that's fair because I thought the Rangers were going to be pretty good. I'm not surprised that Texas is pretty good. What I'm surprised by is that the Astros feel like every time they take, to, to your point, just a few like five days ago, a week ago, they look like they were world beaters again. But every time that happens, something else is like there's an injury. And now you have this thing with Alvarez. We, we have no idea as of right now how severe the injury is. Was it just them taking a precautionary measure and they're like hey this is our best guy we can't screw this up let's pull him let's figure out what's wrong with him but if the big fella has to miss a month or two months that's huge well and to Yasko's point that probably should have been the thought process before leaving him in the lineup if he felt something before the game correct now now, now we know that he actually felt was it something as simple as he took a swing and said that was weird and then felt fine and they didn't even think anything of it? You know, that's that's probably the case because they started him and they played him and he played for half the game. But. And these guys are built, Dawson, to to play through pain, to play through being uncomfortable, right? And, and, this is how right. they're built. And playing through pain and playing through injury is always a, a fine line and you don't want to play through injury at most of the situations unless it's, you know, a very special circumstance and you're in a do or die Correct. playoff situation and still that's still up to the player and the situation but um you know I think maybe the idea is Jordan thought it was fine and then it wasn't and if that's still precautionary I think that's the hope like the hope is probably that it was still fine if this was the playoffs he'd be in the lineup tomorrow but they know they can be cautious with it so they're going to be cautious with it I think that's your most likely uh you know optimism optimistic situation but uh overall I, I think it's just it's fine. They are fine. They need to play a little bit better baseball. Texas, I don't think Texas is going to run away and hide. I really don't, especially without DeGrom, which, by the way, he's not coming back. So that's something that the Astros, I think there was this uphill thing going, man, they're playing that well and they're going to get their ace back. Well, now they're not. So they're not going to run away and hide from you as long as you play decent baseball. By the way, you haven't played the Rangers a whole lot. You're going to get some games against them. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, I think you'll start to reevaluate the division race. If, if Texas comes in to Minute Maid next time they're in town and sweeps them, then you go, all right, might be a long year, but for now, I think you're still fine well, in every regard. I think you wait until July. If it's post 4th of July weekend and the Strohs are still hovering around 500 against teams that are above 500 and they're still having these issues where the lineup's not really getting enough hits and not scoring runs and they still look a little clunky, and if they're like five or six games behind the Rangers, say after, or let's just say after the All-Star break, then I think it's time to possibly hit the panic button. But there are some things that you can start, now that we have a good chunk of the season, you can start looking at some things you can go, "Hmm." maybe not necessarily panicked about, but definitely some things that you go, eh, 
Don't love that. Absolutely don't love that. While we have a few minutes here, we got some news concerning college football to touch on, or just college sports in general. The Big 12 announced yesterday that it's launching Big 12 Mexico, its first international extension. So the conference is going to do this. They will host Kansas versus Houston basketball in Mexico City in 2024. They're going to have also soccer and baseball scrimmages, if you will, versus local teams in Mexico as well. Officials are also going to explore with the Big 12 Conference a football bowl game there in Monterey in 2026. So the Big 12, which obviously its footprint bumps right up to Mexico, makes a lot of sense, especially with a lot of Mexican immigrants living in their footprint, that they're launching Big 12 Mexico. What do we think about this? Um, I made a joke about the fact that, you know, guys might have a big final coming up in the NCAA or, well, not the NCAA, the Big 12 is going to say, sorry, bud, you're playing Kansas State and San Juan tomorrow night, so study when you can. <laughs> Maybe yeah. in between airport yeah. trips you can try and find a way to get that uh, biology test figured out. But not great. Um, all things considered, I think, hey, I'll tell you this, the Big 12 was, like, fairly close to dissolving. Um, I don't know if how close they were, but, like, there was some conversations, yeah. right, Texas and Oklahoma leaving. Bunch of other teams were kind of talking about getting out as well. They figured it out. Um, yeah, and they they went ahead and added all the American powers, kind of stole from the group of five, which hurts my heart. But they did what they had to do. And they're still gonna probably they're they're still looking at poaching some teams from the Pac-12 and, and like, some other group of and, five teams like Memphis. Yeah, and by the way, when they got their those big those American teams, like they got the powerful group of five programs. Like UCF was a power five team disguised in a group of five conference. I think the same could be said for Houston. Um, same could be certainly said for Cincinnati. Uh, so and like they they got the ones they needed and now they're starting to make moves. So I think look, this is it's the further proof that the that collegiate athletics, especially at the top, is sort of dissolving into something that's not collegiate athletics. Because again, I think the idea of these being student athletes that now have to travel and UCLA, by the way, is going to travel twenty seven thousand yes. miles this college yes, football season. Yes, that's I'm glad you you brought oh, that. So it's just ridiculous, but it's 20, where it's going in twenty twenty four because UCLA is joining the Big Ten. We talked about this. UCLA in twenty twenty four will have road games against Hawaii, LSU, Indiana, Iowa. Michigan and Rutgers in the 2024 season the Bruins will have to travel 26,762 miles for games like how is that even profitable can you imagine the expense that's going to be involved with travel for the Bruins and for USC joining the Big Ten yeah, Hawaii is a non-conference game and LSU is a non-conference game. But they're going from Southern California to Bloomington, Indiana, Des Moines, Iowa, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Rutgers, which is in Jersey. What are we doing, man? What are we doing? I've said it too, like the Oklahoma, Texas to the SEC thing, while I don't like it and I don't like the idea of super conferences or even the thought of it, um, I was able to stomach it because they still makes regional geographic sense and the, you know, the program certainly fit probably better than some teams that are in the SEC like Missouri and Vandy, sorry. Um, 
But UCLA, that that one really, because now we're, again, we're completely ignoring the purpose of conferences, the purpose of student-athlete experience. Like, okay, you know, the idea of playing road college football games, I know and we have these big non-conference matchups, it's also easier in football than it is in other sports. And I think it's less significant. That's something that we have to talk about. The track and field athletes that are traveling for midweek games. The or baseball. Volleyball or players. Softball, yes. Volleyball. No one it's, thinks about that because football's the driving now, force even, for all of this. Even baseball and softball, at least you make the argument that most games, conference series are on the weekends and stuff like that. But, but still. Again, the idea, yeah, basketball games on Tuesday nights and stuff like that, it's, it's just crazy to think. Uh, you know, the the idea of, hey, when, when UL plays Monroe, yeah, it's a trip, but we can do that on a weeknight. Like, it's it's salvageable. The same thing when, when LSU goes and plays A&M. Yeah, it's a trip, but like, okay, it's 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 a quick plane flight or, you know, whatever it may be. The idea of UCLA going to Rutgers, it's just, it's just ridiculous, and it's not what college <laughs> sports are supposed to be, but it's no. where it's headed. But we're and, overdue and, for a timeout. I got a lot more on this, and I'm sure we'll get into and it. And that's why I told you a couple weeks ago that it's the NFL doesn't have a secondary – uh, it doesn't have a minor league system. Well, it, the NFL does. It's called Power Five college football, and that's what it's going to even become even more so in the years to come. We got to take a timeout. When we return, CP3 is always injured, right? My guy Dawson Isler said, "I'm going to put on my investigative hat and see if that's really the case, or if it's just a misperception about the perennial All-Star guard." who will or maybe will not be waived by the Phoenix Suns. That's coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. There are two types of sports reporters. Those who are respected for their ability at building relationships with coaches and players. And here's our game plan. Then there are those whose method of reporting is getting hammered with a college football team at Pat O's. We're going streaking! We'll let you guess which one RP3 is. Back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. So... I heard this narrative going around, and, and I've understand that it's, and I've heard it for a long time. And, and at times, I've kind of thought about it and been like, "Oh, you know, that's fair, whatever." Um, but overall, I kind of felt like it was a little bit off base, and that's the idea that Chris Paul is this injury-prone player that never plays. And it was brought up when I brought the idea that I thought he'd be a great fit with the Pelicans. That was one of the main things, and people, you know, in the comments joked about it. And like, I get some of those are just kind of, you know, jokes exactly that, and they're not necessarily meant to be taken. Truly seriously, but there is this narrative, this idea that Chris Paul has been this injury-prone player, specifically in the later portions of his career. Um, so I decided to kind of go in and look at the numbers. Now, I'll give the the caveat here. I think some of that narrative comes from his injuries in playoff games because, A, people are paying more attention, and, yeah, those games are more important. So has Chris Paul had a bit of an injury problem in the playoffs in recent memory? Yes. He obviously this year was injured a couple of times during that Suns run. Now, he played through a lot of it in the past couple of years, too, but sometimes it impacted his performance, and he did miss games at times. So that part of it's fair. But this idea that he never plays and that you know acquiring him would be acquiring another injury-ridden player for the Pelicans, I think it's just simply unfair to Chris Paul. Uh, in the last four years, which I thought is a pretty good sample size of, of his recent career, right, this later stage of his career and, and kind of where the narrative comes from, Chris Paul's played in 264 games during that time. Uh-huh. 
Um, you might say, well, uh, that's kind of tough to gauge, 82-game season. What is that? I'll give you some compar- comparisons from guys around the league, some, who, some of which who do have like kind of this idea that they're injured sometimes and some who certainly do not. Giannis Antetokounmpo, the you know, best player in the league during this time, or at least a top three guy, has played 254 games during that time, so 10 less than Chris Paul. Uh, LeBron's played 224, so 40 less than Chris Paul. Damian Lillard's played 220. Uh, C.J. McCollum, 254. Devin Booker, 258. Drew Holiday, 254. So some guards there, some comparison points. Even, I'll give you, okay, well, Chris Paul's up there in age. What about a younger guy? Trey Young, a guard. He's played in 272. So even a guy who's in his first five years in the last four years has only played eight more games than Chris Paul has in the regular season. So with all that being said, and, and also the idea might be, well, though, okay, some of those guys have major injuries. They had whole seasons wiped out, whereas Chris Paul just misses games at times. The only player in that entire group who missed more than half of one individual season is Damian Lillard, who missed uh, the majority a couple of years ago. Even if you gave him credit for 70 games in that year that he missed all, you know, most of the year, he still would have less games played in that time frame than Chris Paul does. So I think the idea that he never plays and in, in, in that, you know, the, the Pelicans or whoever was acquiring him is getting a guy who doesn't ever contribute, it's just false. And the idea that, look, if he but got. But that to wasn't the, the argument, though. I think it was. That's, well, that's well, a lot of what not, I saw. Not, that may be what you saw because I have a rebuttal to you. He's injured all the time in the postseason, but he plays through the injuries. Okay? And I have my rebuttal to you. 2014, injured his right hamstring late in game one of the Clippers' first round series versus Golden State, but continued to play through it. Didn't miss any of the team's 13 games that postseason, but was injured, and it did impact his play. 2015, injured his left hamstring in Game 7 of the Clippers' first-round series against the Spurs. Stayed in the game to close out the Spurs. Even hit that walk-off floater with one second remaining, but missed the following two games against Houston in the second round because of the injury. 2016, suffered a fracture in his right hand during Game 4 of the Clippers' first-round series versus Portland. He didn't play for the rest of the series, nor did his teammate Blake Griffin, who re-injured his left quad in the same game. No postseason injuries in 2017-2018 injured his right hamstring late in Game 5 of the Western Conference Finals as the Rockets had put Golden State on the brink of elimination. He missed the final two games of that series with the Rockets losing Game 7 on their home floor leading after leading by 15 in the first half. That was the James Harden couldn't make a three-pointer game. No postseason injury in 2019, but did miss five weeks during the regular season because of a strained left hamstring yet again. No postseason injury in 2020, but in 2021, suffered a right shoulder contusion in game one of the first round series versus the Lakers. He played through it, didn't miss any time, but also aggravated the shoulder during game five. Well, my rebuttal to your rebuttal, as you've, you've brought that point up uh, or that phrase up, um, would be that everybody gets hurt in the postseason. And guys, sometimes it's reported, sometimes it's not. I, I understand that, but you came out strong. The, the, the narrative and what was said here on the show was, He's often injured. Yes. Doesn't mean that you can be injured and still playing games. And this isn't specifically to what was said on this show. I think it's just this overall idea about his career and about what's said and about what the value of him is going to be in the post, you know, in this, whether he's released or not, which now is a lot cloudier than it seemed a couple of days ago. But I think, A, if you're the Pelicans and, and any other team, I can, I keep, this is going to be based towards the Pelicans because that's, that's my team here and that's the case I made. Um, I think he's a guy who helps you through some of your other injuries if you have him. Now, look, if he gets hurt at the same time, then maybe it's not valuable. Right. But 
I just also think it's it's just kind of crazy. A guy who's played over 1,200 games across 18 NBA seasons is playing into his late 30s and has never missed more than half of any season and in half of his 18 years has played 70 or more games. Um, I just wanted to push back and give some numbers on like the amount that he's actually been pretty durable throughout I, his career. I understand that, but what I'm trying to explain to you is the perception is, as you mentioned it when you first let off this segment, more people watching the playoffs, mm-hmm. right? For 10 years... Nearly every season of the last decade, including this season and 2022 and 2021, he has suffered some sort of injury in the postseason. And what happens if he suffers the injury in one game? What what gets talked about on talk radio and on television? Oh, Chris Paul got injured. Chris Paul got injured. It's written in the paper. Chris Paul injured his wrist. Chris Paul injured his hamstring. So because more people are watching and paying attention and they're constantly hearing Chris Paul is injured, yeah, yet no, Chris it, Paul keeps playing, is why that's the I perception. I think we're on the same page here. I just think, and you know, it's my duty to try to read through the, you know, try to cut through the narratives, try to cut through that and give you hard factual evidence. Um, CP3, you love CP3. I do, there and that's go. certainly some part of this as well. But, like, I, I was even surprised, and I started thinking, like, which numbers can I pull up? And I was very surprised, specifically about Giannis, uh, Devin Booker, now I know he's had some injury kind of concerns. Yeah, he had questions. the big severe. But yeah. Drew Holiday's kind of thought of as this durable kind of gritty Not guy. Really. Not really. Uh, well, then who? He's, he's I don't know. I was up. trying to find guys who yeah. aren't considered injury prone. Yeah, there's a there's certainly some guy. He hasn't played the most games in the league across this time. But also, this is between his age 34 and 37 seasons that he's played more than all these people. So I just think that's also kind of uh, he's tough. impressive in its own right. He's but tough. With that being said. He's tough, and he's going to bring leadership to the team. Once again. If I'm the Pelicans and you can make that happen, I would make do it all call. day long. But that is the joke that, you know, he's going to be banged up in the playoffs. Right. Which, hey, if they're getting to the playoffs and he's banged up then, I'd be okay with it the way the Man's Pelicans take seasons it. have gone recently. What are we going to talk about next segment? How about NBA Finals? Let's do it. Paul, Dan Favalli of Bleacher Report's going to join us. Going to talk about the NBA Finals next, right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company, live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. NBA Finals, Game 4 tonight. Nuggets hold a 2-1 to series lead in the NBA Finals, coming off the first time ever in NBA Finals history where you had two players both get triple-doubles on the same team. That's what happened with Jokic and Murray. They were magnificent. And the thing about it is, is that I don't think we've seen Denver fully reached their offensive potential so far in these three games in the NBA Finals, yet they still hold a 2-1 lead over the Miami Heat. Does Coach Spo and Jimmy Butler have anything left? Can they still make this a series? To break it all down for us is the man who covers the NBA for the Bleacher Report. Dan Favale joins us next. Dan, thank you for making the time, brother. It's been too long, my friend. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great, brother. All right, so give me your big takeaways from your perspective so far three games into this NBA Finals. I think the biggest thing that's standing out to me right now is I, I do believe the 
despite seeing that Miami's been able to make adjustments throughout the playoffs and been able to make things tough on opponents throughout the entire postseason, I feel like they're going to run out of counters, um, at least when you're looking at how these two teams match up offensively. They, maybe they can do some things defensively to disrupt the two-man game between Jokic and Murray. That was just so effective and critical for the Nuggets in Game 3. Those two play like 40 minutes together. Um, Denver really just spammed the two of them in all the actions. There wasn't really another player on that team aside from Christian Brown later in the game who was moving well off the ball who had it going. And so I do think that Miami could make things rougher defensively. Maybe they're a little bit more aggressive defending um, Jamal Murray and blitzing him or trying to force even more turnovers. But when you look at these two teams offensively, uh, the Heat won that three-point battle in Game 3 by 18 points. And they didn't shoot particularly well from beyond the arc, but they were a plus 18, and they still lost. Um, They've been shooting a very poor clip around the rim. Denver's been very aggressive, keeping them away from the rim, contesting shots at the rim. And this is all happening in the backdrop of the Nuggets not really getting a trademark offensive contribution from really any of their top supporting cast members. We saw Aaron Gordon get a little bit hot at the start of Game one, but you look at him, you look at Michael Porter Jr. struggles from the floor, Bruce Brown, KCP, one of those players, if not more of them, are going to have breakthrough games eventually. And I think the Heat have done a lot of things well. We're even kind of keeping Denver for most of the series out of transition, really slowing the pace of the entire series down. And I still don't believe they've even seen Denver's best collective punch yet. Jokic and Murray, again, fantastic in game three. But there are going to be other players that have better games, especially if you're going to be more aggressive going after Murray and Jokic. And the fact that you're still down 2-1, to one, the fact that you've also trailed by double digits in all of these games now at this point, I just don't think it bodes particularly well. And I do believe that Miami's eventually going to run out of options. Is one of those options the return of Tyler Hero? Is that even a possibility? I do think it's a possibility. He was talking a few days ago about how he still does have um, soreness in that broken hand, and so I'm wondering how much better he you know, can get in such a short amount of time. But when you look at Game 3 specifically, Miami really could have used the idea of Tyler Hero for, for pockets of time, just that uh, shot creator, also shot maker, and floor spacer. I just don't know what do you look like after missing all that time and trying to come back in the finals. And, and have an impact. I think maybe during minutes, specifically where Jimmy Butler isn't on the court, that could be super helpful. Uh, but I'll be very curious to see if we see him at all this series. Well, Dan, it's not to say that Jimmy's been bad in these finals, because he certainly hasn't been, but it's been maybe a step off of what he was, of course, how magnificent he was against Milwaukee. Do you think part of that is the fatigue of how grueling this run has been for Miami and how much pressure Jimmy felt throughout it, or... Uh, do you think maybe he's able to turn it back on and kind of create some of those vintage performances in the next few games? Yeah, I definitely think you know, the the length of the run, um, the circumstances under which the run has taken place where you lose Tyler Hero, you lose Victor Oladipo, and the offense is still reliant on you, that definitely has to, has to take its toll. We also know he's dealing with that, that ankle injury as well. And, you know, I do also think we need to credit Aaron Gordon for the the physical job he's done on Butler. And then even in Game 3, we saw Christian Brown for a little bit, and then even Michael Porter Jr. on some plays. Uh, With their size and length, they were able to make things difficult on Butler. And so he, at uh, at points during this game, has been very aggressive in trying to attack 
Jamal Murray since he's guarding him on defense, which again also is going to have to take its toll if you're tasked with chasing around Jamal Murray. He, Jimmy has been aggressive going after those those cross matches after Denver misses shots at the other end. Um, but his workload is just so heavy in general, and you have to factor in everything that he did in all those previous rounds in addition to what he's doing defensively now and in addition to, of course, that, that ankle injury. And I think the combination of everything, it's probably just starting to wear on him. Well, another thing that's been so fascinating to me is kind of how the world's been able to watch Nikola Jokic throughout this postseason run and now on the on the game's biggest stage. And, you know, even admittedly myself, I don't feel like I pay attention enough throughout the season to, to some of the things he does. What is it about Nikola Jokic to the casual fan who's maybe tuning into these NBA finals? Like, try to explain how he does everything that he does for Denver. Yeah, I think the best way to describe him is what makes him so impossible to solve as an opponent is that there's no answer. There's no weakness on offense that you can go after. Um, if you're going to play him straight up, which we've seen the Heat do, like he's going to be able to either you know hit threes or jumpers if you sag off him, or he will put the ball on the floor and go outside in. He will work from the post. And even if you're defending him really well in those situations, um, he can just hit these incredibly difficult um, turnarounds, fadeaways. He has great touch. I think he, you know, somewhat understatedly, is one of the best mid-range shooters in the history of this game when you look at the, the percentages. You can also be more aggressive going after him, and that's going to absolutely destroy you, though, because he is so good at finding not just the open man, but kind of anticipating, you know, two passes away. Uh, you're looking at his movement. It's really hard to tell in real time. Is he going up for a flip shot or is he finding a cutter or a shooter um, that's in the corner or maybe even behind him? He sees everything on the floor. He's able to anticipate the game so well and that being com- completely devoid of absences on that end of the floor. He is one of the most complete offensive players, um, certainly at the center position, but also at this point uh, that we've ever seen. And it just creates this Massive dilemma if you're opposing defenses. And I think we've seen the Heat throw different looks at the Nuggets more so than most teams through these first three games, and yet you still just don't have a great solve for him because one doesn't exist. If Miami can't win game four, does this series get done in a gentleman's sweep, in your opinion? Yes. Uh, I did predict Denver in five at the start. I certainly felt a little differently after game two. And just what Miami has done, you want to respect that body of work. But that'll be a situation that they haven't had to deal with all season. And I think that we've seen with Denver, you know, go back to that Lakers series. Yes, the games were close, but they did not take their foot off the gas when they were in clear control of that series. And I think this is a team that understands um, you know, despite the performance we saw from them in the fourth quarters of games one and two, uh, this is a team that understands how important it is, you know, to step on the throat of teams when they're up this much. I think because they uniquely understand, even though they haven't been here together before, just how important this opportunity is because you were missing Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray for so long, and that hampered your, your postseason push. And so having guys in the locker room like Jeff Green, uh, even DeAndre Jordan's been pretty vocal for them. KCP, like Green, has has won a title already. I do think when you look at the the comments from those players and even the way that we know Nikola Jokic now spoke up after that game two loss in the locker room, which is out of character for him, 
there, there's just a self-awareness to this team. And so if you do go up 3-1, to one, I think just the, the sheer difficulty of having to come back in general, that's going to suffocate the Heat. But more importantly, I just don't think this is a Nuggets team that at all this postseason, even when things have been going well, by and large, you know, there might be stretches where they're, they're lackadaisical, but they have not taken their foot off the gas. And so if they win game four, I would absolutely predict them to win game five at home as well. We'll wrap it up with this, Dan. The Nuggets have a, a great core, and they got two stars and one guy that may be the best player in the league, and they got other guys that understand their roles. And they look like they're set up, if everything remains healthy, to, to be a power for the next five years. Miami is interesting to me because they've done it with, let's be honest, scraps. They got Jimmy Butler, and they got Bam, who's had a breakout season this year, but neither one of those guys are considered top 10 players in this league. They've started, have have gotten contributions from seven undrafted players and two guys on the back end of their career, and Kyle Lowry and Kevin Love. If they don't get over the hump this year and win a title, They've been in the mix here. They've played for two of them in recent years. What does Pat Riley and Spo need to do, and what type of player do they need to bring in to help them get over the hump? You know, that's a great question, and they're going to have to grapple with both Gabe Vincent and Max Struess, who have been pretty important during this postseason. Uh, they're hitting free agency, so you have to decide what you're going to do with them. But when looking at what their biggest need will be, they got to figure out that you know, if you want to call it the four spot or just one of the front line spots next to Bam Adebayo, um, they have to get an upgrade there. Uh, Kayla Martin was really good this year, but he's undersized. Um, Kevin Love, you know, he works in certain matchups, but we saw he provides kind of a jolt in game two, but then Devers able to adjust and go after him in game three. Uh, you need a more versatile four, someone who's going to stretch the floor, preferably can make some decisions with the ball in his hands and can certainly be moved around defensively and I think the the loss of PJ Tucker loomed large for them this season and I think you go into this summer should you lose this series especially should you lose it in in five games and yeah there's an element of okay maybe we try and retain and and fuss and fill on the margins but I actually think that they're among the teams that need to be most urgent in pursuing I would frame it this way a player in the front court who is going to crack most of their closing lineups Dan, great stuff as always. Keep up the tremendous work you're doing with Bleacher Report, brother. Thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of the finals. You as well. Have a good weekend. Thanks for having me. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station than going to the dentist. Take that, dental hygiene. This is The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, man, time is running out to win the Man Cave makeover. Sunday, last day, it will end. And look, the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, wants to hook you up with the ultimate Man Cave makeover built by Lafayette Marble and Granite. But you got to go sign up in our clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. Get yourself a brand-new recliner from Bordelon's Furniture, a flat-screen TV from AVI, and so much more. But time is running out. 
It's the ultimate man cave makeover powered by Lafayette Marble and Granite and the game Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. I want to take a moment to thank our guest, James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast, Talking Astros. I want to thank Bill Franquez, the voice of Alex Box Stadium, helping us preview the Baton Rouge Super Regional between LSU and Kentucky. By the way, we'll have game one of that for you right here on the game. First pitch scheduled for 2 o'clock on Saturday. Pre-game begins at 1.30, and then we'll have game two on Sunday. We just don't know what time as of yet because, well, because they just haven't made that decision. Also want to thank Dan Favalli of Bleacher Report, NBA reporter, helping us break down the NBA Finals. We did have a poll question of the day for you. How many SEC teams will punch their ticket to Omaha? We know at least two because of the Florida-South Carolina Supers and the Kentucky-LSU Supers. But can Alabama upset Wake Forest? Can Tennessee take down Southern Miss? So how many teams will punch their ticket to Omaha? Final results. 48% of you say it's only going to be two. 40% of you say three teams will punch their tickets from the SEC to Omaha. And 12% of you are very optimistic, saying four teams will be headed to Omaha. Who that forever says two? Alabama's about to run into a buzzsaw and Tennessee's been terrible on the road. Thanks to all who commented. Thanks to all who voted on our poll question of the day. We appreciate you making us part of your morning. That's going to do it for today's show. Shout out to you, producer extraordinaire. Great job, bud. Grab that microphone. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Felt like it was a good show today. It was. It was a great show. Great discussion. Great discussion. You brought your A game. I brought mine. Yeah, I think so. Boom, there you go. That doesn't always happen. We'll Usually try to do it next on my week part. as well, but don't don't hold your hopes up. <laughs> we'll be back on Monday 6 to 9, but until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foote in what will not be a glorious Friday morning edition of Footnotes is up next right here on The Game.